human and comparative anatomy have been fat-free for the past 450 years, so it's not entirely surprising that uh, interpretations of human anatomy are based largely on speculation rather than um, uh, on the facts. And it is the comparative anatomy of uh, um, uh, adipose tissue that I propose to talk about today relating to um, uh, human medical problems. There are one or two exceptions. A um, ambitious young um, artist, uh, this is taken from um, uh, Rembrandt's um, The Anatomy Lesson of Dr. Tulp. He was honest, he was not a scientist, he had not been trained in the classics, he painted what he saw. And the two arrows actually show adipose tissue. Furthermore, it's shown as yellow, which indicates that this um, uh, hanged, this prisoner uh, had not been in jail very long, living on a diet of herring heads and bread, because he had obviously eaten plenty of dairy products. Um, uh, but when we were, so when we were instructed to investigate human anatomy, human um, obesity, uh, using mainly rats and later uh, guinea pigs, uh, we actually had a side project, mostly done on evenings and weekends, looking at wild animals. And it's the wild animal side that I'm hoping to tell you about. Uh, and the reason that I was determined to work on wild animals is that I was interested in natural adaptive obesity, the professional job, which reveals functional anatomy and how to combine fatness with fitness because it is done naturally in the real world where the fittest have to survive. Okay, now let's look at some natural, natural obesity. These are ordinary European badgers. There's some of them around here, plenty of them up in white and wood. And you can see that they sometimes get very fat. And another reason why we're looking at wild animals is because uh, some wild animals naturally become both fatter and thinner than it is either technically possible or legal to induce in laboratory animals. Take rats, for example. It's very difficult to get them very fat, and it's illegal to make them very thin. But you find that out there in the real world. So this talk will really be about comparing the structure and organisation of adipose tissue in wild mammals with people, then talk a bit about the anatomical arrangement, um, breeding and feeding, that is the relationship of um, uh, adipose tissue and its organisation and function to um, the, how it is integrated with the fundamental mammalian biology and its evolution. And we'll talk a bit about the stories of thermogenesis and lactation, and right at the end I will talk about sex differences in fat distribution, particularly wastes, because Leanne's been talking about wastes. And um, uh, to cut a very long story short, one of the things we're able to do is this. This is about 15 years' worth of work in which um, uh, I personally dissected around 250 mammals, completely to remove all the adipose tissue, um, ranging in size from bat and mouse-sized animals via hedgehogs and um, uh, squirrels and uh, monkeys and that kind of thing, right up to uh, large carnivores, bears and whales. And if you um, uh, measure the uh, uh, diameter of um, uh, adipocytes in about 20 different depots, we didn't do it just from one or two samples, but about 20 different depots, and the mass of the depot, and then add it all up, uh, you get this picture here, which shows that the... Um, uh, uh, <coughs> let's go back to the previous one, actually. Um, uh, the relationship between the number of adipocytes and body mass is not, as you might expect, linear. Uh, on the contrary, larger animals um, tend to have um, fewer, larger adipocytes. They are not fatter. That is, the 
the adipocytes are larger because the body mass is larger, not because um, uh, the fatness, the proportion of that body mass, which is fat, is larger. And there were some differences between herbivores and carnivores. We don't need to go into those now. But when you compare it with humans, and these are data taken Siostrom and Bjorn talk in the 1980s, what you find is that whether you consider um, uh, humans to be herbivores or carnivores, they still end up having somewhere between 10 and 100 times more adipocytes than would be expected from their body size, but those adipocytes are smaller than would be expected from their body size. By coincidence, by unfortunate coincidence, about the same size as those of rats and mice, which is why people who work with uh, laboratory animals can comfort themselves by saying, oh, well, that's easy. All adipocytes are about the same size in relation to fatness. On the bigger scale, that, image, that picture is not actually true. So then we became interested in collaborating with others in the high Arctic. I took these pictures. Um, uh, looking at what happens in na animals that naturally become obese in the wild. And these are Svalbard reindeer that live on the islands of Svalbard, which is halfway between the north coast of Norway and the North Pole. And we know they have been out there for less than 10,000 years uh, without their natural predators because um, uh, we can look at that from the geology as when the uh, last glaciation ended and the ice retreated. And they are, compared to ordinary reindeer, um, uh, short slow, um, uh, non-migratory, non-herding, and fat. Um, uh, the fat, they fatten up in the autumn, which is triggered entirely by day length. It is not triggered by dietary de deprivation or any other kind of stress. It is not a stressor. It is triggered entirely by day length. That's been demonstrated by experiments in, in uh, specimens in captivity. And when you get inside, they look like this. These are pictures taken in the high Arctic in December. These are wild animals, no cheating. Um, uh, and um, when we calculated the total number of adipocytes, even though the um, fatness of the fatter ones was up to about 25% of the body mass, they only have between two and three times more adipocytes than would be expected from an animal of that body mass. And indeed, what was found in their other subspecies of reindeer that do not naturally get fat. Okay? Um, we also were investigating in these um, wild, naturally obese wild animals, the partitioning of adipose tissue between the intra-abdominal depots and the superficial depots, which is a matter that Leanne and others have a great deal to say about. And this is only in one group of animals, the carnivora, that is animals from... Um, uh, I'll probably actually go back a bit to there. Yeah. Why is that not doing it? Uh, sorry, it hasn't, um, it hasn't um, uh, scanned properly, but um, we go down here to things like... Um, uh, weasels and um, stoats and very small carnivora to otters and um, uh, there's an otter up there, badgers and right up to the large carnivores and um, bears. And to cut a long story short, what's happening here is that the um, uh, uh, as animals get bigger but not necessarily fatter the proportion of the adipose tissue that is in superficial depots get greater and the proportion that is in intra-abdominal depots gets less. And furthermore, as simple geometry will tell you, uh, larger animals, um, where large is defined by body mass, um, have a proportionately smaller surface area. Therefore, very big animals appear to be very fat because they have lots of adipose tissue in the superficial depots and is very thick because the superficial area is proportionately smaller. And it's a bit of an illusion. 
because big animals appear to have very thick tissue. People say, oh my goodness, isn't, it, isn't, isn't the adipose tissue thick? But actually, when you measure the whole lot, they often turn out to be um, uh, not proportionately more fat than the others. And there was absolutely no evidence when we compared uh, semi-aquatic species, say otters or um, big animals, small animals, that um, the organ, the partitioning of the adipose tissue between the superficial depots and the intra-abdominal was in any way had anything to do with insulation. That is, the Arctic animals did not have proportionately more superficial fat. Um, uh, the proportions could be explained entirely by the geometry, by the fact that they were bigger and proportionately more was on a smaller surface area in the superficial depots. Okay. That is, there was no evidence from this that superficial adipose tissue in this group of animals is adapted for thermal insulation. The only ones in which it's adapted thermal insulations are the um, obligate aquatic species, the seals and the whales. Now, I'm going to change of tack, and I want to mention some ideas that we had that we were able to investigate experimentally that came directly from observations on wild animals. And the first relates to the, not so much the big depots, but the um, function and anatomical relations of the very small depots, of which um, <coughs> particularly those that have a functional relationships to the uh, immune system, which is again an area of um, obesity research that is very fashionable these days. This um, image here comes from the Hunterian Museum um, uh, of the Royal College of Surgeons. It was made in the middle of the 19th century, and it shows the important components of the lymphatic and the blood system. And you can see somebody has spent a great deal of time moving the adipose tissue. If, on the other hand, you look in the real world, this is a wild rabbit that was extremely lean. Look at the inguinal depot. It is reduced to virtually nothing. But the popliteal looks like that. And that's the, what remains of the inguinal. That is, the adipose tissue immediately around the lymph node remains under all circumstances, even when the rest has disappeared in um, uh, uh, healthy, wild animals that are naturally lean. Okay. So we cannot say this, thought something must be something funny about the adipose tissue that is within two or three, maybe five millimeters of the um, uh, lymph nodes. And that, therefore we decided to investigate using guinea pigs. And this is a very simple experiment. Um, uh, all we're doing here is I'm getting up in the middle of the night and giving um, uh, guinea pigs a subcutaneous injection into the hind leg near the popliteal depot of lipopolysaccharide. And then we um, uh, uh, remove it the next day, and we measure glycerol release. Um, a very simple experiment. And you can see that in the perinodal adipose tissue, that is within 10 millimeters of the, around the, the uh, lymph node, we have, within three hours, a rise in lipolysis. It's had nothing to do with exercise or diet or fasting or anything like that, or even stress. Um, and then there's a, a, a delayed and attenuated response in the remote from node, which is over here. Right, now, um, we did a lot of experiments um, uh, on this um, uh, topic, uh, but I just want to show you that one, uh, this is a summary, uh, that is a perinodal adipose tissue was activated via the adjacent lymph node within one hour of stimulating the lymph node. Okay? Um, and um, uh, we did a lot of work on the mechanisms, the um, mediators of this uh, effect, 
And this is a, um, a simple micrograph, a thick section. This is the popliteal lymph node. There is the coronal adipose tissue in um, a normal light. But if you um, add, this is just one example picked at random, uh, say it for TNF-alpha receptors and look at it on UV light, it looks like that. Of course, there's lots of TNF-alpha receptors in the lymph node itself, so it takes up a lot of the dye. But you're also looking at TNF-alpha <coughs> receptors um, in the piece of adipose tissue, immediately contiguous with the lymph node, and the um, staining attenuates um, within about um, uh, a centimetre. Okay. So again, to cut a long story short, what we found in brief was that perinodal adipose adipocytes, but not those, or to a very much lesser extent, further away from the lymph node, secrete and respond to many cytokines. They selectively accumulate polyunsaturated fatty acids in their triglycerols, that is, they selectively take up polyunsaturated, particularly essential fatty acids, and those same fatty acids, during an immune response, end up in the structural, it's often misquoted as the energy source, it's the structural lipids of the lymphocytes. In other words, it's functioning as a local lunch bag for the lymph node for use in emergencies when that particular lymph node is stimulated by an infection or a, a inflammation of any kind. But it also is partially opted out of responses to fasting and exercise. It has a much lower response to noradrenaline, and it, it, it doesn't participate, essentially, which is why it is retained in that wild rabbit and other wild animals, because it's not involved in supporting whole-body fasting and exercise, but it is involved in paracrine mechanisms supporting local requirements for, for um, fatty acids. OK, so that was one, sort, one idea. Another idea we had which has also been taken up by the medical world, relates to um, uh, cardiac depots, particularly epicardial adipose tissue. Um, now, we notice this in bears, in reindeer, and in a great many other mammals. In fact, most, virtually all wild mammals have, even if they're very lean, adipose tissue on the heart. Furthermore, if you, this, is, this is data from the same reindeer you saw earlier, and we're now looking at total mass of the adipose tissue all the way in the body, from an animal that would have been, say, 3%, 5% by the receptacle adipose tissue to 25 to 30%. And this is the mass of the depots. It's quite variable, but there's absolutely no relationship between the mass of adipose tissue elsewhere in the body, the fatness, and the amount in the epicardial and pericardial depots. In other words, it's another opted out piece of adipose tissue that seems to be doing something rather different and is not contributing to the whole body um, uh, metabolism. And then we had a look at, the, this is one of them, an animal that died at, uh, of starvation, and this is the um, uh, myocardium, there's the adipose tissue, you can see it's heavily vascularized, and it is um, very, there's no fascia between the adipose tissue and the muscle, they are tightly opposed, they're really very intimate. And further experiments on um, uh, guinea pigs uh, showed that actually they had um, uh, a very high uptake of fatty acids, very high capacity for, for um, uh, uptake of fatty acids in both basal, insulin-increased, and high-fat fat, high fat fed conditions compared to your standard ordinary depots normally used, like the perirenal, that's a standard intra-abdominal depot, and the popliteal, and even the lip. In other words, it's a piece of adipose tissue that is metabolically active. It is functional, but it is not 
dancing to the same tune as the adipose tissue elsewhere in the body. It's doing something different. And I remember the catty comments of this. this paper, the first paper that reported this was rejected four times before we finally got it into a very low-grade journal um, uh, after a long series of catty comments. And now people, now that they have CAT scans and other um, uh, non-invasive uh, scanning systems, they are measuring it as an indicator of heart disease. So that's sort of something, all I want to say for a moment about white adipose tissue, that it, in mammals, but not, as you'll see, in lower vertebrates, it's involved in lipid storage and lipid management. It's anatomically dispersed with many site-specific properties, some of them um, controlled more by paracrine local factors than by systemic um, uh, controls. In other words, it's an upgraded form of adipose tissue. And then we have the, um, what used to be known as brown, I prefer to think of it as thermogenic adipose tissue, which is unique to eutheria in mammals. And I want to spend the next few minutes explaining what, how I think this particular sort of thermogenic tissues is so important to the basic mammalian biology. And we have to understand that it's becoming increasingly clear from studies not only of birds, but also of um, uh, the more primitive mammals, the marsupials and the monotremes, the um, the prototherians and the lower uh, eutherians, that brown adipose tissue is simply one of several muscle-derived, and it's now known that brown adipose tissue is derived from muscles developmentally, muscle-derived forms of non-shivering thermogenesis found in birds and mammals. Okay. It's just one of several. It happens to be the one that the eutherians adopted. Now we want to talk about... Um, the roles of energy storing dissipation in mammalian evolution. Why are mammals so good at it? Why do they need it? Okay. And I think it's related to parental feeding. Now there's two, um, virtually no reptiles, some reptiles guard their young, but no reptiles actually feed their young. When the reptiles had two branches of evolution, one went to birds and one went to mammals, and they developed parental feeding in two contrasting ways. And one we're going to call secreted food, which is milk, basically, and the other is collected food, and this is a duck-billed platypus, that is a very, very primitive mammal, right at the base of the mammals, which even lays eggs, and there, got a couple of there she is with a couple of babies suckling from her, even though these babies emerge from eggs. So lactation started very early. Now let's see what happens with secreted and collected food. Collected food depends a lot upon weather and time and availability. Secreted food is always there, and the composition of the milk has adjusted the age of the offspring, not the mother's diet. The mother does the adjustment. Okay. Um, storage is impossible, and nutrient imbalance is, imbalance is likely, and the adults have to forage a very long way. But the lipid, protein, and mineral stores in adipose tissue, bone, and muscle can produce the milk that eat the babies need regardless of what the, whether it was raining that day or the, whether there were any insects in the sky or whatever. Okay. And um, foraging is avoidable. Um, breeding is often seasonal. In fact, the main reason why birds migrate is in order to get to a place where they can breed and the parents can find food for the chicks in adequate quantities. That's why they go and breed in the high Arctic and all sorts of odd places like that. In, with mammals, with milk, adults... You can have breeding anywhere that the adults can live. Okay. So let's look at the exceptions. Because the exceptions, as they say, prove the rule. Now, this is some fairly old data, 
from about pigeon milk. It's a little known fact among um, mammalian biologists that actually a few birds, including some of the most successful, um, uh, have at least uh, in the initial stages adopted um, the mammalian uh, trick by secreting um, uh, nutrients. Um, it's called pigeon milk. It's actually not milk. It's a deciduous tissue from the throat that is um, uh, uh, fed to the pigeon. Here it is. Here's the baby there. The mother is feeding that one from the milk that is formed from the back of her throat by a deciduous tissue. It only, both parents do it. They only do it for a few days. But you can see here, when the parents are secreting milk, the babies are growing very fast. It only goes on for a few days. And then when the parents have to bring food, um, uh, the rate of growth of the babies slows down a lot. Um, uh, whereas when the chicks are foraging, the rate of growth is about constant over the whole of the developmental period. This ability, by the way, is one of the main reasons why pigeons and um, doves and other birds are doing so well um, in urban environments, and in particular in these days of climate change. You may have noticed that the ordinary passerine garden birds um, are much rarer than they used to be with the uh, a, a lack of insects, um, and lack of worms in the uh, alternating drought and um, floods. Um, uh, so they, they're having a lot of trouble breeding, but the pigeons are actually doing even better because um, they're taking the food from the passerines that are not, not able to breed, and um, uh, they have this adaptation that enables them to um, uh, reproduce using a wide variety of different kinds of foods. In fact, almost anything that the, the parents can eat, the, the babies can as well. Okay, so secreted neonatal food supports faster neonatal growth, but requires metabolic support. And it's the metabolic support that I want to talk about now. Okay. Let's take this extreme example. Here she is here. This is a female bear, and she's fat and proud of it. But actually, she has twins, sometimes triplet offspring, and they're very, very small. This is a, um, a baby that's already about three months old. Bears, when they are born, are about the size of a guinea pig. They weigh about one kilogram, and she weighs about 600 kilograms. Okay. And when you get inside, it looks like this. But the reason for this is because polar bears suckle twins, sometimes triplets, for three or four months in the high Arctic, in a den inland in the high Arctic, then they migrate about 100 kilograms, and then they start hunting. Or, so they're doing all this without feeding themselves. Want to try it, ladies? Want to try it? Suckling twins for four months without a meal yourself? No wonder obesity and also um, uh, things like glutamine storage of amino acids and glutamine and also minerals, bone, that kind of thing. But the point is, she's fat and fit. She does all this, then she goes to the sea. And look at how big those babies are. She's still feeding them. They're still not independent. Right, so that's one of them. Um, and we know that um, <coughs> they've evolved relatively recently. Polar bears as a new species uh, evolved within the last 40,000 years, um, and it regularly hybridizes. Now, let's think about mammalian diets. Okay. Cutting a long story short, um, most of the extant groups of reptiles, virtually all living species of reptiles, are carnivores. All um, crocodilians, all snakes, every single one, are carnivores. Many of them predators on other vertebrates. Now, the great thing about being a predator on other vertebrates is that the chemical composition of the prey and the chemical composition of the, 
of the predator are virtually identical. When a snake eats an entire deer or something, it essentially has a complete nutritional meal. What was the lady who said? What was it called? Total something um, diet. And that's effectively what it is, right? And um, at least 95% of all species of lizards are also um, carnivorous, though many of them eat invertebrates, particularly insects. The only group where you get a significant number of herbivores is among the tortoises. The, ter the uh, terrapins and turtles are also carnivorous, and most um, uh, living species of large tortoises are confined to remote um, uh, islands uh, like Aldaba and Galapagos and places like that, where they are not competing directly with a lot of mammals. There were, of course, um, uh, herbivorous reptiles uh, in the um, Mesozoic, but most of those got wiped out um, uh, at the end of the Cretaceous and they never made it back afterwards because by that time mammals had taken their place as the primary herbivores, terrestrial herbivores, among the vertebrates. Most ma terrestrial mammals are herbivores. We're looking at the three or four different types. And um, plants are tough, they're indigestible, they're toxic, they're low in proteins and fats and minerals, so large quantities need to be eaten for adequate nutrition. And thermogenesis, what used to be known as um, a diet-induced thermogenesis, is important in rebalancing. It's getting rid of the excess energy so you can extract these rare uh, proteins, minerals, other things that you need. And this is particularly challenging in these circumstances. Now, elephants are so familiar that we forget what an amazing metabolic feat is achieved here. We have an elephant, a mother elephant, there she is, eating um, uh, grass, rather tough grass, bark, the odd bits of nuts and fruits, but really remarkably low, what we would think of as a very nutritionally deficient diet, a very low, certainly a very low protein diet. And there she is not only sustaining herself, but also um, uh, growing um, a baby to um, uh, suckling to see if that baby probably already weighs about a tonne, and she will continue to feed it until it weighs at least two tonnes. Okay. And this is achieved in large part because or you have not only storage tissues, but also energy dissipating tissues. And this is a simple um, uh, diagram that I have drawn up to explain what white adipose tissue is actually doing. It's anatomically distributed, site-specific properties, Fatty acid sorting, that is selective taking up of polyunsaturated fatty acids in perinatal adipocytes and elsewhere, that are enabling several things to go on at the same time. You can combine fever with immune responses, or indeed fever with uh, lactation, or immune responses of lactation, because the adipose tissue is controlled locally and has specific properties. Um, and that it stores lipids safely, it can support a high metabolic rate, and it, this enables um, increased metabolic stoke, enables um, heterotherm. But it does more than that. It also helps with lactation in conjunction with what I haven't called it brown, I've called it thermogenic adipose tissue. It dissipates excess energy. Now, we normally think of brown adipose tissue as related to cold tolerance. But that's because it's easier to experiment with animals by putting them in the cold. It's much more difficult to measure the longer lasting but lower level dissipating energy associated with um, uh, what used to be known as diet induced um, thermogenesis. And of course, the um, spectacular thermogenesis is all about hibernation and torpor, but it's also about dissipating excess energy, coping with unbalanced diet, exploiting transient 
um, and indigestible food supplies, which, uh, which enables heterothermy, and most important of all, lactation. Okay? Um, uh, in other words, adipose tissue is both better organized anatomically and metabolically more diverse and better controlled metabolically than it seems to be the case in other birds or reptiles, though birds do some of it. Okay? Now let's look at um, the relationship between euthermy and um, uh, lactation. Euthermy is a jolly good thing. It enables you to digest faster, you can have microbe-assisted digestion in greater quantities. That's why, by the way, ruminants can't, including reindeer, can't hibernate because they can't, um, they get the, the microbes have to be lost and they can't do that. Um, uh, increased metabolic scope, you have specialised feeding, exploits tough, um, low-nutrient foods, and therefore you, via herbivory, um, you have, or they, they don't want these specialised opposable teeth, but um, in lactation you have faster growth, more allometry, infant nutrition emancipated from <coughs> the availability of local food. Emancipation is the term I want to use. And so adults are, infants are weaned directly on the adult diet and reproduction, <laughs> reproduction can take place anyway. You don't have to have seasonal breeding, you can, and animals become suitable for domestication. Okay, now, right at the end, I want to talk just in five minutes about um, the evolution of the distribution of adipose tissue. It really happens, okay? Now, I'm just hoping the people were awake here, but the point is, in spite of what is applied, uh, implied by that um, a uh, little poem. Going back, look how old it is. 120 years. Um, uh, Kipling. Um, actually, the um, uh, distribution of adipose tissue is totally independent of um, total fatness. That is, there's no evidence that the humps are really concerned with um, uh, excess uh, fat. Fat tissue is largely determined by um, uh, movement and habits more than anything else. And sex differences in mammals are rare. Take polar bears, when we were working on them, okay, I looked and looked and looked for sex differences in the, in the distribution of adipose tissue between the males and the females, because I, I didn't mention it, but of course while the females are doing all those spectacular things out in the Arctic, the male bears are over there fighting with each other, and the male bears have nothing to do with raising the offspring, but there were no sex differences at all in the distribution of adipose tissue, other than those that could be explained by the fact that the males are about three times as big as the females, is it, um, <coughs> and generally the females were fatter. And that is, there was no di difference in distribution per se, other than those that arise from body size. Um, uh, but in humans, of course, we all know that there is, there are sex differences, and I want to talk a little bit about how that evolved. Um, by, it is related to bipedal walking. Uh, uh, chimps can stand, uh, chimps and orangutans can stand a little bit and they can walk a little bit, but their walking does not, they don't have, um, as this diagram shows, um, proper um, uh, waist. This is an ape, you can see here the uh, pelvis um, and the um, uh, ribs are very close together. The, there's um, not much of a gap at where the lumbar vertebrae are. You can see this side view here. That's a very long. Uh, <coughs> Here, um, iliac flare, and so there's not much scope for bending. And one thing that's happened in the evolution of bipedality is that the um, uh, pelvis became much wider, and you had a real gap here where you can twist, you can do this. A chimp cannot do this, and this business is extremely important for enabling a long stride.
which is essential for um, uh, efficient walking and fast running. In other words, the, um, uh, this anatomy, that is the um, much longer uh, lumbar region, evolved probably of the order of um, five million years ago. Um, and then after that, there's much debate about when it happened. You got smaller guts as well as longer abdomens. But more importantly, um, the dating of hair loss is highly contentious. The best estimates, recent estimates I could find was about 2 to 2.3 million years ago would have made human adipose tissue more visible. It's not that there was more of it, but the superficial depots became more apparent because they were no longer cloaked in hair. Okay? Um, th therefore, there was opportunity for um, sexual selection of body shape, encouraged by the fact that around about the same period of time, you've got the relatively rapid um, increase in brain size, which would have promoted wider hips in females because they needed the wider hips in order to give birth to babies with bigger heads. Okay? Um, so these two processes happen more or less. I mean, if the evidence is very indirect about the same time. But to cut a long story short, what we ended up was something a bit like this. That is, you get virtually no sex differences in distribution of adipose tissue in infants, very little in children. It develops during the reproductive years. Um, uh, uh, particularly associated with emphasizing the hips, the thighs, and the breasts. And then it um, declines in old age, such that in extreme old age, it's actually sometimes quite difficult, without looking at the genitals, to tell one cadaver from another, um, uh, because the sex differences um, regress. In other words, it's specifically related to the reproductive years, but not necessarily to lactation. But if we look at the um, images, and most Paleolithic images are um, females, uh, in the period 40,000 to 25,000 years ago, virtually all the female Im images seem to be specifically concerned with reproduction. We have here images of pregnant women, lactating women. All these ladies are pregnant, um, including, probably, the granny of them all. This is the, um, uh, she's made of mammoth ivory. She was found in uh, southern Germany about 10 years ago. And you can see that she has a fair belly and she certainly has massive breasts. Um, fairly thin, slim thighs, actually. As indeed up there, you can see these characters here. The um, uh, upper body, the neck, let's take one of them off so that we can see that. Oh, that's the wrong way. Yes, the upper body is actually quite slim. Look at her. Her arms and her arms and her arms, and that's been as the bullet off, are shown quite slim. But look at her abdomen, her breasts, and her thighs. She's doing pretty well, isn't she? So she's not a beast. She's simply a breeding female, a, bre a mother. There she is. But then about more recently, from about 5,000 years onwards, something odd happens. And furthermore, whereas those images that I showed earlier all came from Western Europe, these ones come from all over the world. And you can see, yes, we can see thick thighs and that kind of thing, but we also see actual obesity. Look at the upper arms. Look at the upper arms here. Look at that. Okay? Um, and they're not specifically pregnant women. Th those ones over here, for example, are definitely not pregnant. In other words, we're seeing images here of obesity as such, rather than a massive body which is specifically related to the reproductive process. Right, now that's all I want to say about that. I want to take one minute that the one that they can see here, the very marked emphasis of the hips and the thighs and the delicate waist. Can't quite say that she has a waist, but these ones um, really <laughs> emphasize the waist. Now, one more thing. 
As I mentioned, uh, as I think has become clear, it has been my mission in life to integrate comparative and evolutionary biology with medical sciences. Now, it just so happened that all those animals that I dissected um, for this research, this is going back 40 years, um, if the uh, skulls and skeletons were in a good enough condition, I prepared them at home and saved them, um, which is a lot of work, by the way, preparing a, a skull. And after about 40 years of all this, I ended up with a collection of around 400 bits and bolts of around 400 animals, most of them um, taken from animals which, for one reason or another, become naturally obese, because that was why the, the animal was collected in the first place. And um, I'm getting old, as I'm sure you know, and so very recently, within the last year or two, I gave the whole lot to um, uh, the Tartan Zoology in Oxford. It is housed at Wild Crew buildings out in Tuttony, about 20 kilometres left. I personally paid for this old um, cow shed, later a garage, um, to be upgraded to house the collection in here. It's also used as a study room for the students um, studying the international, the diploma in international wildlife um, uh, conservation. And it's used for research students. It's the terms of the request were specifically that scientists may remove items for sampling for any biologically or medically relevant physical or chemical procedure, even those that involve defacement and damage to the material. It is not a museum. It is a, a research resource for people looking for genes, proteins, collagens, um, stable isotopes, anything else that they want um, for, to further the use of comparative biology in medical research. And there's all sorts of bits and bobs um, here. It's not necessarily like a museum, the biggest and the best. It's um, whatever happened to be around. Um, and um, uh, you can use them for anything like that, and probably many more techniques will come online long after I'm gone. And that is the um, uh, catalogue. That, that is the website for the catalogue. Um, that gives you the um, uh, complete list of everything that's there and the um, terms of use. And that's where I want to end. Thank you.